Hello and welcome to Androids and Assets. I'm Marshall. And I'm Stephen. Today we are uh, departing once again from our uh, previous recognized format. We're going to try something new. We hate brands. Okay, we, we will not be or remain on brand. <laughs> <laughs> we will go back to brand eventually. We'll return to brand or the, yeah, event, yeah, somehow. Uh, there will be a short survey at the end of this episode. <laughs> we'll ask you to take five to ten minutes out of your day to help us know if this was uh, an improvement or not. And if you're looking for great groceries delivered to your door, Blue Apron will give you everything <laughs> you need. <laughs> we are going to today talk about speculative economy as a whole. Not in, well, I mean, I think we'll mostly be referencing Star Trek because what else? We wanted to talk about a, a post-scarcity or a, a proto-post-scarcity uh, economy and, and, and its relationship to a universal basic income, which goes by a variety of names, guaranteed income, minimum income, uh, whatever else. Yeah. They all mean generally the same thing, that everybody gets some money. So we're going to talk about post-scarcity or proto-post-scarcity, I think first we need to kind of establish what is scarcity. Uh, Ostensibly, it's just things are hard to get, hard to come by, right? So there is, you know, you can't have a Tesla, you know, (laughs) uh, or I can't have a Tesla, right? Are there Teslas for me to have? Yeah, but I I can't have one because I don't have, you know, the the financial uh, availability to purchase a Tesla, so instead I have my, I, I retain my existing car. Yeah, basic scarcity is like just things you can't have, right? And that can be because so there's some barrier that's blocking you from acquiring it or there isn't one, right? So often we think about like scarcity in terms of things like famine or, you know, uh, unavailability of commercial goods. But however, there actually is functionally no difference to you between a scarcity that results from a productive failure or a scarcity that results from a ac- acquisitional barrier. The, the difference is that one is artificially produced. And so one of the things that, that people who are trying to institute a post-scarcity would say, we've now reached a point in our productive output where the majority of our scarcity is artificial. Yeah. Uh, and so then really the only barrier to no longer feeling scarcity or no longer feeling scarcity uh, towards our essentials, such as housing, food, medicine... Uh, maybe some aspects of culture, uh, that those barriers can be artificial and can be removed by an act of political will. Yes. And so this is, and this kind of then launches us into the ability like that we have the the productive capacity to make scarcity of necessities a complete thing of the past. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and this gets to like, I guess the difference then between post-scarcity and and proto-post-scarcity is that Post-scarcity is like, you could have whatever you want, period. Like, if you can dream it, you can have it. Proto-post-scarcity is the, like, your basic needs are all met, and probably a lot of your luxuries are met. But if you say, well, I want to own, I don't know, like, an entire planet, they're going to say, well, we're not quite there yet. We don't have that much post-scarcity. But if if you want, you know another helping of food, no problem. Go nuts on that one. If you need another vehicle, sure, we will replace your vehicle. 
if you want a fleet of 10 vehicles, uh, uh, probably not. Uh, yeah, you're out of luck. Or, or that you got to have, you have to find, acquire it by some other means. You have to. So this is kind of the issue then um, with with kind of post-scarcity and the kind of debate then about instituting a UBI. One of the things that had kind of stopped a lot of like social reform in the past was the fact that the productive scarcity was real. Right. So, you know, like um, we you know, talk about like peasant revolts in the Middle Ages uh, and often there would be like people would you know, they'd rise up and they would seize the grain stores. But then there would be some downturn in production or something or they would just be completely destroyed by reactionary knights or whatever. Like, you know, there was the, the productive the material reality wasn't there to support uh, the redistributive policies that people were advocating for. And I think in our current situation, uh, barring, you know, barring active disruption against our productive capacity, we could conceivably meet some of those things. And one of those things we could do by, and we can do that fairly easily by using our existing monetary structure, right? Yeah. So by just real, reallocating a portion of the money, we could then create the capacity for people to have to be to be free of fundamental scarcities. Yes, I mean we have so many billionaires that just have such incredible wealth that really don't need it, uh, and and that generates scarcity, right? Because um, now now I have to compete with Jeff Bezos for money, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And Jeff Bezos has all kinds of advantages over acquire and acquiring money over me, largely the fact that he can. Sp- collect money that I have already acquired <laughs> through, through his businesses, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is where like the fiction of scarcity really comes in is that some people are hoarding and it, it leaves everyone else in a very precarious position and with a feeling that scarcity is is still absolutely a real force, right? And and in, in a real way, it, it is absolutely a real force, but it's like an enforced scarcity. Um, and this is this is hugely problematic. But if we just took you know, some of their money and said, you don't need this anymore. We're taking it and we're giving it to people who do. You can materially change someone's uh, living situation in a real impactful way uh, with minimal actual like investment or, or effort. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's just sort of like take some money away, give it to the person who needs it and let them do what they need to do with it. And things will be a whole lot better. Yeah, yeah. And you can do it in a way that's remarkably unintrusive to the vast majority of people, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like most people, you know, if you're an engineering consultant, your life is unchanged by, <laughs> by this. If you're a Walmart reader, your life is, well, probably greatly improved. <laughs> exactly. So this is where like a, a UBI would be the, the tool that we would use. Choose uh, some amount of funding and say everybody gets this money. Uh, and it's just, it's universal. This would also help to manage certain kinds of like shocks in the economy. Like this is one of the things we're learning in the coronavirus period, right? That jurisdictions that have provided some income to cover people who are experiencing income loss uh, have kind of helped their, have, have helped, you know, some of their sectors from facing really adverse effects. This is not a new idea. This is a thing that's been around for a long time uh, and has been uh, advocated for by a wide variety of, of people um, all over the political spectrum. Um, some of them for self-serving purposes and, and others for, for less, but um, it's, a, it's a compelling idea, partly because of its simplicity. Uh, it's just like yeah, all you have to do is just give everyone money and it solves a lot of problems. Sure, let's, that's the easiest thing we can possibly do. Some examples of it, though. Uh, we have homegrown Canadian examples in, in the, the 70s. The federal government and the provincial government partnered to provide income to a, a portion of the population 
uh, probably most famously uh, Dauphin, Manitoba. Every resident of Dauphin, 2,000-ish people, uh, was eligible. Not every resident, I guess. Every resident of a certain age was eligible for this. Unfortunately, Dauphin's uh, experiment, when it ended, it, it ended a little bit early, um, and then uh, uh, the results were just kind of buried. So we didn't um, we didn't really learn about the the, the full impact of it for some for some time, but it does not have the negative impact that some of the the people that fearmonger about a, a UBI talk about. Like, oh, if you just start giving people money, well, then they're going to quit working. Like, some might, but actually, very few of them quit working. And most of the ones that quit working quit for like good reasons. Lots of people who quit were people who hadn't graduated high school. So they quit working and went back and got their, their high school diploma. Other people who would have been expected to drop out of school early chose to remain in school. So uh, Dauphin had, during the, the years when they were providing the, the minimum income, grade 11 students in Dauphin had a higher probability of going to grade 12 and graduating than the uh, other rural students in, in Manitoba. And higher than neighboring urban areas. So that's a wild, like a, a huge change, right? Rural areas, particularly, you know, 50 years ago, um, had terrible graduation rates. But they turned it all around by just being like, yeah, like, sure, if you go to grade 12, uh, your family still has money coming in because, like, we'll, we'll give you some money and you can, you can help support your family without having to quit high school and get a job. Um, and so kids were like, oh, yeah, I... I'll graduate. I'll, I'll graduate. Yeah, I'll finish school. Yeah, I think it also had a big impact for mothers, right? Huge impact on mothers. Yeah, or, or people who, you know, would have been not been able to stay home and, and provide childcare for for children, um, could now afford to to not have a job and and be able to like care do do child rearing, uh, which is great. And it had health benefits as well, particularly like mental health benefits. People who were receiving it were were far less stressed. Uh, they made far fewer hospital visits uh, and doctors' appointments because they just they weren't suffering from 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 like mental health burdens of like I am poor uh, and and poverty is like a mental health illness like the the, the stress that it puts on you and uh, I, I think Stephen knows more about it but chronic stress triggers cortisol release that's the yeah. one yeah and that when and cortisol is antagonistic to a lot of connective tissues in the body and, and those sorts of things. Uh, it's just like all the soft, squishy bits you need to stay alive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so if, cool if, stuff. if you're poor and you're a hard laborer, like th- this is a bad combination. Say, say goodbye to your joints. Yeah, exactly. And I think like also, and there's also like other knock-on effects from poverty. For example, generally, if you're poor, you tend to have issues in obtaining like certain types of nutrients. It tends to be dietary things. There's housing issues. Uh, you know, you're more li- if you're poor, you're more likely to live in like a, a if your house has mold in it. Well, you might just end up living in a house with mold in it because what else are you gonna do, yeah. right? Uh, so there's like all these kinds of like things, which depending on the severity of your poverty, it exposes you to all these exponentially multiplying risk factors that can really endanger your health. Often when people are leaving work, when they receive a basic income, it's because that working situation was bad or, and or dangerous. Yeah. Uh, often, like, often people are put in danger at work and they stay in dangerous working situations because they need that job. And this really came home to roost with, with COVID, mm. right? Um, with a lot of people being like, well, this work is dangerous. Being a waiter is extremely dangerous. And as much as like maybe like regulations have relaxed to permit people to return to that kind of work, it is not safer now than it was four months ago. 
<laughs> right? Like, nothing, <laughs> like, let's be clear, nothing has substantively changed. The, the thing that's changed is our appetite for risk and we're willing to expose people to. Anyway, this is a digression. All kinds of benefits and benefits that people didn't expect and that when there was disruption, when people did exit the labor pool, they were exiting it for generally good reasons, like for things things we consider, uh, things we try to actually actively induce in our society, which is like more caring labor, more education. Like these are all good things, right? Things we want more of in our society. Yeah. Uh, and more recently, Ontario introduced a, a pilot program for a universal basic income. And the Doug Ford government has a lot of crimes under its belt. But one of the, the biggest for me is that they promised not to end this pilot and then you know, within weeks of being elected, uh, ended this pilot. So Ontario had a, a, a three-month, a, a three-year pilot program where they they had selected uh, four thousand residents uh, in in Hamilton and and surrounding area, and they would receive about sixteen thousand dollars per year, and then that would be clawed back uh, at fifty percent of whatever they earned. So if you you'd get get you'd be getting sixteen thousand dollars if you earned ten thousand they would take five thousand back so you you'd end up with a total of twenty one thousand simple um that fifty percent clawback is a really great way to incentivize someone keeping a job it's better to be working some because you'll you'll still get all of your basic income uh and you'll get whatever else you earn on top of it we're not going to like cut you off entirely uh you you end up with more instead of working and ending up with the same as not working well maybe it's not worth that that's how you drive people out of the labor force exactly yeah <laughs> but but what happened to the people who were on that program these people signed a three-year contract to to receive this funding and as expected they quit jobs that were harmful for them there were people who were you know were, were suffering um previous mental illness and um couldn't hold a job, uh, were suffering from malnutrition. And that was solved because all of a sudden they had, they had enough money and they could, they could afford real food. So they, be, they became healthier. People who, you know, couldn't hold a job before all of a sudden became able to hold a job uh, and then re-entered the workforce. So there was, you know, it was something like two thirds of people immediately after receiving their payments left their jobs. Half of them then went back to jobs. So... And that was only within less than two years, right? Or that was like within a year. Yeah, yeah. And and the people who didn't go back into the labor force typically went into schooling. There's there's lots of stories of who went back and and were getting a diploma, but that they couldn't have afforded before. Uh, and now they they're like, I have the security that I can actually go back and like get schooling to get a better job. I, I can become an engineering technician and double my earning potential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you just pay me a little bit of money. For two years, I got it. I got it handled. After that, no problem. Done. But but what did what did the Ford government do upon coming into? Well, this? within weeks of coming in, I think it was uh, n- no more than two months. They abruptly cut this program, and they said it's an expensive program, and and paying people is uh, not the way to restart the economy. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta incentivize it's indolence. One of their favorite yeah. jo- uh, phrases of like a job is the best form of welfare just makes me puke every time that I hear it. And it, this devastated people who you know thought that they had three years to sort of make a plan, turn their life around and all of a sudden the rug is pulled up from underneath them and and this is like i think it's morally and ethically wrong like to promise somebody yes this is what i'm going to give you for three years uh, and then just like boink actually no uh i'm going to make an entirely ideological decision here and uh and take this away from you and and now those people are and that had very destructive impacts like the yeah, yeah i mean there's there's these people who you know 
we're relying on it for the security of, of having it. And, um, and now they're not. So they're, they're again facing poverty and they're facing malnourishment and they're facing using coupons to be as frugal as possible. But now I'm just choosing sometimes to not buy food. Um, and that's, that's a sad state when we have enough food for these people. The grocery stores are not going to run out of food because people who currently are experiencing poverty don't experience poverty anymore. They will still have enough food, to be sure. We're in this like proto post scarcity. We have the ability yeah. to give everyone what they need. We just need to make the decision to give everyone what they need. And, and the thing is that when this plays out in studies over and over and over again, right? And this is happened this has happened internationally to varying degrees. There's lots currently studies ongoing uh, in India, in Germany, uh, Finland concluded its study. And we still don't know what happened there. A lot of people are going to write articles about Finland studying failing, um, but it's not clear <laughs> really what what they were thinking over there. It's not. I don't think it's the smoking gun everyone says it is. But yeah, certainly like this is getting. It's being tried. It's being studied, and a lot is the discoveries are is always like the the outcome you'd expect, right? It's a we're doing a lot of experimentation to confirm the the already pretty apparent conclusion, which is and that I, you know I, I, you say like it's what you expect, but it's actually I think counter to what most people would expect mm. right we have been we have been drilled for a very long time that if you give somebody money they will do nothing right you're like you need to take money away from them to incentivize them to to get a job if you give them money you're doing the opposite and so it it takes a real like shift in in thinking to say actually the the people who are most successful are the ones who come from successful households because they have enough money to get themselves set up to be successful. And so all we're really doing here is giving people money to set themselves up to be successful. And, and when people are successful, that has benefits in your society. Yeah. Right? Because those people then go and they make things and they do things and they help people. You know, like... Yeah. Uh, lots, yeah. There are lots of people who would, like, you know who would love to be an artist or something, right? And now all of a sudden the kind of entry, the barrier to trying that out is removed, right? When you do exactly. this. So I think it also applies for like small businesses. Like, you know how many like t-shirt companies, are, right? like, you know, how many businesses are going to be born out of this initiative when you, again, like create that, when that barrier of not drawing an income for seven years from your business is dissolved. Mm-hmm. Like that's going to lead to, and you know, for, I think what Marsh is referring to, yeah, like this general sense that UBI would constitute a moral injury on society, uh, that it would, it would, it would hurt. It's not true. Yeah, it's not true. Right. Yeah. And, and the people who don't work almost always, it's because some, they have some barrier to working or maintaining employment. And now they're just not, now they have actually some support, right? Uh, and sometimes even the, and sometimes through the support, they can even eliminate that barrier. I'm going to give credit to Rick Webb for this one. He talks about the economics of Star Trek and a proto-post-scarcity sort of lens there. And I really find it quite compelling, this idea that what the Federation did is they just started giving everyone a universal basic income. And over time, they sort of increased the value of that basic income until everyone was getting such... A large amount that it came to the point that it was it was silly to continue to exchange the the dollars or you know between people. It was like, well, yeah, like I could go to Steven's restaurant and and pay him fifty dollars, a hundred dollars for supper, but he's just gonna you know give that fifty dollars or hundred dollars back to me 
later because you know he he bought uh, the the sculpture that I produced, and neither of us really need that fifty or hundred dollars from each other because we know the government's going to be giving us another you know payment in the next week or month or or whatever. So the the, the physical exchange of it kind of became meaningless. And so everyone was like, well, yeah, like the Federation doesn't use money. And not that it doesn't have money or have the idea of money. It's just that it became like exhausting to actually write. Let me, let me pull out my wallet and, and do this exchange. It just became like a silly thing. Um, it's actually the kind of thing that finance people kind of talk about all the time. Like we could attain, you know, if people were properly invested, everyone could attain a base level of wealth and then live off their wealth if they had the capital. You know, it's this concept, except it, it can actually happen because you have a government actually guaranteeing these returns and these returns yeah. and these disbursements to people rather than it being a bunch of grifters who take people's money and then through various fee scams embezzle it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and and when we watch Star Trek, uh, no one is like, oh, this is impossible. This couldn't, you know, the, the, the impossible things that we see are, are stable wormholes and, and warp fields. Those are the things that we're like, that's, ah, that's madness. No one is like, oh, it's madness. Joe Sisko is still running a restaurant. Well, he likes running a restaurant. He's like, yeah, if I didn't run a restaurant, I probably would just die because like I'm an old man and I got to keep doing something or I'm just done for. That's his incentive. That's it. He likes running a restaurant. He likes having customers in that he can talk to. He likes sort of being the center and he gets that. And, and so he does it not because he's getting super wealthy, off of running a restaurant. I, I've never seen him charge his customers for anything. I've, I've never seen a restaurant. I've never seen like a person who runs a, a single restaurant make a lot of money either. So. No, that's also <laughs> true. I think the people who run restaurants now, uh, you know, sole proprietorship restaurants, uh, also aren't in it for the money. Yes. So they, they might earn, you know, it's not earning a, li- a living, but it's a, it's a way of having a life. There are people in the Federation who do things because they like doing those things. People join... Starfleet because they want to explore. They like being a scientist and and they know that this is going to take them to a planet no one else has been to uh, or at least no member of the Federation has been to and I just want that opportunity. I want to be able to go and do and see things and there's some people who are like, I just really like making art so I'm just going to keep making art because I just like doing it. That's how their economy functions, right? It's, It's no longer on the need for exchanging currency and gathering huge amounts of wealth because it's, it's pretty meaningless. You can just do something. Money, as we've said before, is a social relationship. And you can replace it with other social relationships. If you are the best artist, people are going to, you know, want to be around you. And, you know, like you, if when you're in vogue as an artist, you, you get feted and you hang out with other powerful people and people, you know, you you feel important and you feel you have friendships and, and things like that because that's how it works. So you can have like a relationship that way and, and, and a power structure and um, you, this you, is like yeah. in everything. Well, you, you can transition from a society that fixates on punishing people for underperforming and works on incentivizing people for performing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like, you know, that, that actively seeks to like, because from, again, from a basic, from an adequate basic income, employment is a, is a prestige and it's, and, and it's actually wealth. It's not um, the life and death struggle to survive. <laughs> and, and the notion, and the notion is like that off actually, when you actually take that cloying desperation out of people's 
um, out of the equation, they tend to do, they actually do better, not worse. Yeah, right. Uh, and so, you know, like, and yeah, so I think it's really about pivoting from a kind of punishment model to a rewards model. All we have to do is look to the way we have seen changes in child rearing, right? Uh, I think in general, we've seen a, a, a pretty broad consensus that children who are hit, um, you know, like, I think it's pretty uncontroversial that children who are hit, particularly children who are hit often, uh, don't do as well as children who are not hit, right? Um there seems to be you know, a correlation there. I think this is a de- you know a development in in society where we're moving towards that, and we're understanding that you know you, we we can do better by fostering development rather than just like ruthlessly like rooting out things and discarding. Like we, because currently our system is to find people, be like, oh, you can do something, and we pull them up. Right. Um, often, often the reason we pulled them up is because of the, who their parents were. But you know, <laughs> uh, but that's some notion. Again. But some notion that yeah, like that. Then that, that you know, you have you're you're trying to harvest a resource, uh, and you're discarding all of the excess at the end. Uh, whereas when you start looking, when you stop seeing it as a as a proposition of excess people, this is I think something Cory Doctorow said when he was on as well. Like when you stop perceiving people as excess, you can actually take turn them from a, a detraction mm-hmm. and, a, and a, you know and something you when you stop treating them like waste they can actually prove to be an asset yeah yeah and i think also as, as, this is something you know like when you mentioned dr o if you stop saying like oh the things that we do need to be making money and they just need to be making then then you can turn our economy to very more productive ends right the, producing cryptocurrency in a, in a farm is not a productive thing, right? It's profitable, <laughs> but it's very profitable. Uh, but it would not be profitable if you took away the value that this currency has. It just it, all of a sudden it's like, well, there's no point in me doing this. No one will be proud of me for having run the the largest crypto farm out there. And so, so you can take and turn the economy and say, okay, well, you know what? Like we know there are huge problems in the world. But but we can harness the power of all these people and fix them, right? We can we can save the whales, and we can we can reduce carbon emissions and bring our planet back from the brink if we just stop saying like everything needs to be about earning profit because it's not super profitable to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. No, not at all. It's anti-profit. <laughs> but that's only profit in money. In terms of you know survival of our planet it's incredibly profitable but but because but because you're operating in in returns constraints that are based on the quarter yeah <laughs> when you're when your whole world is three months you can't no think big like you can't you know you can't you can't well, you can't very, think it's about, very challenging you can't and you think need, a generation you need government inter- intervention at yeah. that point and then you get like a four-year horizon um but that's how like like companies like tesla or or uber these companies that actually are not earning any money but are subsidized by government, um, they're able to to think a little bit longer because they're not constrained necessarily by having a profitable by, 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 by being profitable that quarter. <laughs> yeah, Uber notoriously, yeah, <laughs> colla- <laughs> perpetually collapsing inward, only to be saved by Peter Thiel or whoever. Uh, yeah, so, so some people still, I mean, uh, somehow still are not sold on the idea of a UBI. Some of them will say, "Well, it's too expensive," um, which. Nothing is too expensive. Stop saying that. Nothing, nothing is too expensive. We choose to constrain ourselves in our budgeting and say, this is too expensive because we don't have enough money for it. 
forgetting the fact that one, we make our own money. So there's always more of it. Uh, and, and two, by constraining ourselves and saying, we can't take money from other people who have way too much of it because that would be unfair. Forgetting somehow that, you know, being born into poverty is also not fair and rectifying that would be probably the greatest justice we could exercise. Yeah, a redistributive policy that corrected in Victorian times would be called accident of birth uh, <laughs> yeah. would, would be far and away the best thing uh, any government policy ever did. Uh. <laughs> so to say like it's too expensive is really to say I'm comfortable where we're at and I would not like that to change. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things people do need to become comfortable with is the notion that property is also a social relationship is not some inviolate uh, metaphysical principle as it is kind of enshrined in in enlightenment thought yeah right so the, the you know this notion this notion that you own something and then that's yours right it, what does that mean there's a difference between ownership and possession like for example like you, know, you may own you know elon musk owns a lot of things he possesses very little of his wealth right like you know he he has his house and his his houses and his cars or whatever but you know even that's just a fraction most of what he has is tied up in ongoing investments and then you kind of get this thing about like well you know then if you're taking away money from money from elon musk or uh jeff bezos you're taking money out of the investment market um although you might be taking money away from your your billionaires and taking it out of like the the speculation market you are in fact moving it into the productive economy of goods and services and actually you're stimulating goods and services then rather than um financial instrumentation which ha again has will have broader productive long-term benefits as well. It's a good thing. A new criticism that I've been seeing more and more recently, and one that just drives me a little bit bonkers, is some people will say, I would love to have a UBI, but I don't want a UBI that makes me better off now than I am already. And it's couched in this idea of like selflessness, that like I'm already comfortable. I have everything that I need. I don't need an extra $16,000 a year given to me. That's not going to make me better off enough, right? There's There are decreasing returns to giving people money. And some people have enough that the extra 16000 will not make their life actually that much better compared to, you know, some people who have almost nothing. 16000 has a, a huge and outsized impact on, on their life. So it's, it's couching this like selflessness of like, well, I, I totally understand why a UBI would be good, but I don't want one that makes me better off because they're already so well off that like, well, they're afraid it would constitute a moral injury. Again, it's the, it's the yeah. other, it's the other more, I think it's, it's the other side of that, right? The not, not, not that, oh, this will promote indolence in the lesser classes, but actually the much more serious one that this could actually impact, that this, that this could deal moral injury to the, to the middle manager. What about the middle managers? What, <laughs> what if they lose the fire in their belt? <laughs> you know, or, or what if? I'm never a fan of giving more money to millionaires and billionaires, uh, but I would much rather give some money to millionaires and billionaires, a small amount, and also give that small amount to people who it will hugely help. Because the alternative is to not give it to people that really need it and give even more to millionaires and billionaires, uh, you know, so they can build like a new arena or some bullshit. Some people will get into like monetary arguments and be like, well, if you just introduce a, a UBI, all you're going to do is cause inflation 
and then uh, the the UBI that you gave people is going to be basically worthless, and they'll be in the exact same position as they started, but money will become worth less. Probably not. I think the relationship between uh, money supply and inflation is far less causal than we like to think that it is. There's also a huge thing in there about like the the velocity of money. If people are spending money faster, then then your money supply goes up. So, you know, you can you can reduce the amount of money in an economy and not actually impact inflation because people just change how they spend. Um, and so then the money supply basically remains stable. And you know, the yeah. inflation so, is far more complex than, yeah. than we can possibly you just imagine by saying, oh, if you just give money, you're going to cause inflation. Like, yeah, maybe, I but mean, maybe not. Well, well, and what we've seen in the last few months is we've seen tons and tons, the money, the volume of the money supply dramatically expand, yeah. right? Um, and, and, you know, and it's hard to predict when inflation will happen. But I think the thing that's important for people to note is, yeah, there's what Marshall talked about in terms, there was like, there's volume and there's Ooh. like speed or velocity or rate. Oh, these are the major things to consider when calculating inflation. And so what you get is you get a bunch of people getting, you get a lot of money added to the money supply, but it's distributed in small amounts to individuals and they, and that's just, and that's going to flow, you know, in all these, in all these means and people are going to, you know, and then businesses and things are going to collect that up. It's only going to really be a problem if you're not also doing the redistributive measures on the back end. Uh, Cause one of the things you do need to do is you need to have taxes and things to be, you know, to, you need to be doing redistributive things again to collect money back to be pulling money out of the money supply uh, through through those measures. So I think yes, there is there is an issue where they say everybody gets some money and everybody gets a tax break. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think if if you do those things, if you do both of those things simultaneously, and they say oh, and also we're removing all barriers to the circulation of money, we're reducing regulation, we're increasing financial instrumentation, uh, that's a recipe for inflation. And part of the problem is so there is some piece to which in a society where they've they've cut regulation and they've increased the flow and they've and they've and they can, and they are giving multi-billion dollar subsidies to large corporations and then you throw UBI on top of that yeah maybe you'll impact inflation at that point yeah but, but we're nowhere near that i don't know i think it's i again it's just another way of saying like well don't do it because like it could be harmful for those people but also doing nothing is very harmful for those people. If you're penniless, you're not going to become doubly penniless. Yeah. So so from their perspective, uh, things don't, you know, hyperinflation, no hyperinflation, who cares? <laughs> from their perspective. Um, yeah. And Star Trek doesn't have inflation, right? It doesn't become more expensive for me to go eat at Joe's. Yeah, because again, you've because again, you've altered the coordinates of the social relationship. Yeah. Right, and it's the thing. And inflation, inflation fundamentally flows out of a certain type of social relationship to money, and the way people treat and value money. <laughs> and, and and generally, I think one of the things that, although there is like again, like inflation fundamentally is a loss in confidence in the relationship that money represents. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just people, people don't believe in it. They need more and more and more and constantly more and more and more because they don't believe in it and they need a vaster and vaster assurances. Um, so, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, it's very complex and I don't mean to speak about this in absolutizing terms, but I think when you drill down into the center of, of this, it's about, it's a fundamental about confidence in money. And I think one of the things is if you get everyone on the money and you get everyone using it and you secure everyone a steady supply, you're going to be increasing and improving the confidence of in, the, in money. Uh, in certain in certain respects, but again, there are still ways you can fuck it up. 
right? Let's, let's remember. <laughs> let's remember the ways to fuck it up. But if you, if it, if it, if it gets fucked up, it's a lot of things went wrong, and the UBI was just it just probably did nothing, or is just one of the things in a long, long list of contributing factors. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like there's like a scale somewhere, and then they put the last penny on it, just breaks the system. <laughs> oh, we should have oh, not U- had a the UBI. UBI. <laughs> And even if it is the straw that breaks the camel's back, like take some other straws off. It's fine. Oh, would it come down anyway? Right. Yeah. Like it would like, you know. So like if if the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit Service, we call it in Canada, if that destroys the Canadian economy, it's not the service fault. <laughs> it's it's a disastrous uh, monetary policy that destroyed Canada, that destroyed the economy. Right. We were in a lot more trouble before yeah. we came along. Yeah. So yeah, I think one of the things there is like a potential dark side to UBI. Some of the, some of the proponents are are very right wing people who are like, you should bring in a UBI because it would mean that I could pay my people less and get work out of them anyway. That this could provide cover them for a bunch of corporate redistributive measures. Yeah, right. Well, you know, so you, the companies could say, well, listen, you bailed out all the people. When are you going to bail out my business? <laughs> you know, uh, and you thought the UBI was expensive. You you have not begun to know the meaning of expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I will show you expense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing it with the seven trillion dollars of, of of quantitative easing in the last eight months. But you know, like, yeah. So I think like this is it. There's a whole issue. Like, what is it? You know, UBI has to be part of a has to be part of a whole suite of ways of thinking about money and ways of managing and understanding wealth and property, right? Uh, and, and adapting those because if you just throw again, it's that thing. If you just throw our UBI on our already uh, dumpster fire. Uh, political and economic situation. The UBI is the fix for the extreme poverty. It's not, and that should flow out of a broader policy fix, right? But if you just do the UBI um, in, in a way, and and you you don't address, like you don't have other measures to help protect those people from predatory actions, or you don't then stop other types of, you don't actually do the redistribution, I guess, yeah, um, out of the financial economy and into the real economy through a UBI or another measure, then then you're not helping. <laughs> then, you, then you're making it worse. And I think so then, you know, and then you also, and you, and then you still also need then all of the consumer protections, right? One of the things is consumer protections that become really important because now all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people walking around with money. Well, you you do actually then need somebody who can say like, hey, landlords, you can't raise your rent to the UBI. Huh. You know, oh, you get $1,600 a month or $16,000 a year? Rent is $16,000 a year. What a coincidence. And I know you have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <right>? like, <Ta-da>. yeah. <laughs> like when you talk about like Silicon Valley billionaires talking about it, they have a company store mentality. Mm-hmm. They're like, we want to create a little bit of, we want to create a little bit of capital flow everywhere so we can squeeze it out of everyone. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they want to farm, they want to, they want to, they want to farm social assistance like a resource. Uh, <laughs> uh, with, because they, they've got no other source of money right now. So yeah, they've yeah. got to take <laughs> it they, somewhere. They've tapped everything, right? So, yeah. So, some people will also, and I, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with all of this, but they will say, you know, we have this hodgepodge of welfare systems in place right now. If we brought in a UBI, we could replace that hodgepodge and and have like one UBI. And that would basically pay for the UBI. Probably not entirely true. Depends on how much UBI you want to give out, but whatever. Sure. But I think you need to be careful about just wholesale saying, we gave you some money. We don't need to give you any other support. It's done. 
because um, there are there are varying levels of of need, um, and and sometimes, you know, just a bit of money is not actually going to cover it because our system is not built that way. That like just having some money is gonna, a small amount of money isn't going to replace everything else that 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 might be there, right? Um, often supports for for people with disabilities will be very expensive. Like putting an elevator in your home is is not an inexpensive endeavor, um, but you might need to do that, or or you need to buy a new home because the one you're in is just completely not feasible for living in, and and. Uh, you don't have the capital to make that happen. $16,000 a year, probably not going to change that. Yeah, you're still going to need public housing supply. Yeah. Yeah, and you probably want to grow public housing supply. Yes. If you grow public housing supply while you have a UBI and while you grow health care, that creates a whole class of people who can who have the ability to succeed and be productive. But if you just do the one thing, right, you can, in fact, make those people way more vulnerable, actually, now. So there is like, an, there's a piece to that that's like, yeah, you certainly can't say, you can't, again, UBI cannot become the social license by which we wholesale fuck all low-income people <laughs> over, right? No, no, absolutely. And this is a, something that actually really needs to be watched for because there's a, it's not a not possibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're like, there, there are people who are fighting for this because they know that if they can cut everything else it leaves people extremely vulnerable and, and and that's what they want wealthy people want people to be vulnerable with pockets full of money that get refilled at regular intervals i mean that's even yeah. better that's even better yeah. but if you're vulnerable then you rely on the people who have to to give you the table scraps right and if we remove that vulnerability it removes that power that power sh- the, the 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 relationship that we have right now goes away and they don't want that to go away no they want the asymmetry right they don't want more people going to college because they don't want their kids to have to compete with other kids for college spaces right they they have yeah. everything right so they don't want more broader even though i mean like the scarcity of college spaces is absolutely constructed as well yeah. well yes also <laughs> I mean, well largely by them like at, at yeah. a certain point you're just doing it for your own uh, fucking amusement <laughs> or, well why do we have yale so people can go to yale so the yale can be elite so we can continue to instantiate the eliteness of yale <laughs> yeah like if if we invested effectively in 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 um, education we could allow everybody who wants to go to post-secondary to go to post-secondary without having to compete for a space. There are, there are enough highly educated individuals that we can continue to highly educate more individuals. Yeah, like, and you have stuff like, and you have situations now where like you have distortions from the market, like the private se- So for example, uh, people who are experts in like artificial intelligence development, there's such high wages <laughs> for, 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 you know, high, this is very complicated, very high level training stuff. It involves a lot of work, but there's such pull from the private sector. There's barely anyone in the universities in those fields to teach. So they're creating like, you know, you have this thing and that enhances the value of the education, but it also creates more barriers. Like, and you see how like you kind of get these, like now the, again, the market actually distorts and hinders the development of this technology. Yeah. Um, through the labor market <laughs> and it was if you took the pressure off of people if you decrease the overall competition in the labor market um or you create or you decrease the the power of financial incentive in the labor market you could create more options for people uh and then then they could do more things and because some of those people go there because the salary you know draws them in it's not that the work that they're doing <laughs> might not even require 
their level of education that they have. Uh, and it might not be that stimulating. And, you know, most people who get a PhD do it because they wanted to learn that stuff and study that stuff and, and work in that field. And then they go into the private sector and they're forced to do some other bullshit that's not actually what they... But they're getting paid a lot for it. So Fix Alexa's voice recognition. <laughs> Fix it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so you know, if you, if you take that power away and say, you know, actually, you could stay here and do whatever you want, uh, they might. That's, a, that's an entire possibility. So I guess what this, as always, is leading me to is that a UBI is, is not the only solution, right? Um... Um, massive wide-scale change in our society is the solution. Uh, uh, compassion for your neighbors and, you know, organizing and, and putting pressure on people and uh, finding ways to affect change and, and bring in positive changes for people. Like getting, getting a UBI is great, but like we should also probably get dental care and, and pharma care so that, you know, we actually have truly universal healthcare. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of they, they, they sort of like they form a web that we need to, to build together. Any one strand of them can is, you know won't 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 bear the load. Right, and will break. And this is the thing that happens all the time. Right, you see, like somebody gets the new hot ticket idea. Like I remember when we were young, or when I was kind of like I was going to school and like studying mental health, kind of just at the end of where like the government in the 1990s uh, identified fetal alcohol spectrum disorders as the cause of a lot of problems. So like, listen, we're going to spend a bunch of money. We're going to test everybody who we think might have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and we're going to find them and we're going to hook them up with supports and that's going to fix everything. Um, and then, you know, so there we were, I was kind of going to school and people were there 10 years on and people were like, everything's not fixed. Uh, and then people were like, well, you know what it is. It's, and then you, know, you have people, positive, you kind of, you kind of see how this goes. Right. And it's like, well, you know, like, cause then you have to, identify them and then put them into into a track of actual support and help and then you have to have like you know so um not not that i think alberta's like uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disability strategy is bad i think it, it did a lot of really good things but it's it's only one thing and then people tend to see like that didn't fix everything let's give up right let's yeah, go yeah, back yeah. to throwing and then basically whatever saying that didn't work let's go back to throwing everyone in jail <laughs> uh, basically, uh, yeah. which is like not that's not the lesson there. Like, no, you know, um, the lesson there is like you need to keep going. <laughs> and I think I think the only way we, is through. Yeah. And if we can all relax a little bit about our fear that uh, that we're going to lose, that this is going to take something away from us. Right. I think this is the biggest thing when we stop when we ourselves stop living in fear of being punished, then we can hopefully change this whole like system and culture of punishment yeah. and persuasion, uh, you know, like, because you, you, you'll get, all you have to lose is your chains, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but you won't, you won't be able to live without fear, you know, of losing everything because your boss gets mad at you until uh, the poorest homeless person uh, doesn't have to live in fear of finding their next meal. So now comes the five to 10 minute survey. No. <laughs> So this is our, yeah, I guess this, we did an experiment today. We tried something new. We took a risk. Yeah. So, yeah, let us, let us know what you think. Uh, reach out to us. You can, uh, you can email the show info at androidsandassets.ca or you can find us on Twitter at AssetDroid. Uh, and I'm, I'm Marshall. I'm on uh, Twitter at Econovoid. And I'm Stephen uh, on Twitter at SteveDroids.
we'd really appreciate if you could, uh, you know, like, share, subscribe, retweet, force it on your friends, play it in a car. Stage a revolution, institute a universal basic income so we could go to podcasting full time. That would be, uh, yeah, if you could do that last one, <laughs> we'd be forever in your debt. Cheers.